The following audio is from Heritage Christian Fellowship. More information about Heritage Christian Fellowship is available at heritagefellowship.net. Turning your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. And I have a couple announcements for you while we're doing that. Um, huddle groups meet tonight throughout the valley. Um, I'm actually really excited about tonight's kind of topic and discussion topic in general. I've gotten a lot of different questions in light of our time in Galatians. We'll address some of this today also in the sermon, but um, when we're dealing about this idea about the law not being able to save and about not returning to the law and instead clinging to Jesus, that does bring up a lot of questions for a lot of people about, so then what does the law even mean to us? Why do we read this? Why do we study this? Why is that important? And so tonight in huddle groups, you guys are going to be spending some time looking specifically at how Jesus Christ himself viewed the law. It'll be a really profitable time, so um, just really encourage you to be a part of our huddle groups. That's how you, better than anything, integrate in and get to know people in the church, and that's where a lot of the ministry and, and, and community takes place. We're kind of at that size where it's hard to do that on just a pastoral level. So we push a lot of that stuff through our community groups. So I want to encourage you to do that. Um, Next week, daylight savings time, spring forward one hour. So this is the bad one. This is the one where we lose an hour's sleep, but the days get better. You know what I mean? Like the days get longer. It's just, it's rough. So um, spring forward an hour. Otherwise, let's see, that means you'll be late to church, right? Isn't that how that works? You'd be an hour late to church. So uh, spring forward, that'd be good. And then... um, Man Camp is this coming weekend. The guys will be leaving on March 6th. And uh, if you guys haven't signed up yet, we still have a few spots available. It's going to be at Washington Family Ranch. It's an Acts 29 um, camp collectively. There's like 300 people or 350 people, I think, going to this thing. And uh, John Bryson, just an incredible speaker from uh, Memphis, Tennessee, is going to be coming out to speak, as well as some of the cast from the show Gold Rush. If you guys, is it Gold Rush, I think? Is that the name of that show on Discovery Channel? I don't watch it, so I don't know. Some of those guys are going to be there, so um, maybe they'll have gold and you can get it. I don't know. I don't don't watch the show, so I don't know, but apparently it's kind of a big deal. Um, Also, uh, by the way, if you don't have a Bible, just stick a hand up nice and high. we got some guys that have some that we would love to be able to put one in your hand so that you can follow along. Um, If you don't own a Bible, that is a gift to you, and we pray that it would serve you well um, and guide you into a better or closer and closer relationship with Jesus Christ. Um, So some other things. Uh, Heritage website blog. For those of you that aren't aware of this, um, we've really gotten into some really good rhythm of getting... uh, Our website blog historically has been like my own journaling. It's like January 1, no, 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 no. January 2, no, 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 no. September 13th, no, 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 no. you know what I mean, like that? But we've been doing good lately, and can I just say that some of the pastors, have, there's been some really good content up there, and we're really making a concerted effort to keep that fresh and updated. So make sure you check that out. There's some really good stuff on there. Um, also, uh, Saturday, March 14th. New to Heritage Breakfast on Saturday, March 14th. So um, if you're new, and I don't, whatever that means, even if you've just been around but you've never had a chance to get to know us and really hear more and more about our church, we would love for you to be able to join us at this breakfast on the on March 14th. Um, are there signups for that, Kathy? Is that a sign-up or is that just a show-up? That's just a show up. So um, the pastors and I and some of the elders and stuff will be there. Um, We'll have some breakfast together. We're going to talk about the history of the church, kind of the the foundational, if you will, beliefs and and purposes and calling of the church and and about all those sorts of things. So I really look forward to getting to meet um, some of you guys there. I hope you'll come. And then finally, um, I I just found this out this morning, like an hour ago or something. So I don't have photos of any of this yet. I will get them for next week, but it was just too exciting. I have to tell you anyway. Um, As you guys know... 
we have been, we, we bought property for Oasis of Hope, that's our sister church in Uganda, and then we're able to send, we did love offerings together and sent money to them for them to be able to build their building. And I don't know if you've been tracking through some of our stuff on social media or not, you'd be able to see some of the photos, but literally, like, while you were asleep, they had their first service ever in their brand new church building, and it's a huge deal. Yeah, please. But... um. Here's what's awesome. Here's what's awesome. So the church used to be in more of an urban setting. It was more in the city and more surrounded by like stores and things like that. The new property is actually, it's nearby, but it's in a neighborhood. And so when this church started and they had their first service this weekend, apparently people from all over this neighborhood that had nothing to do with the church before came. They were absolutely packed, standing room only, and it was just a huge celebration in the new building. And that is just phenomenal, phenomenal news. I am so excited about that, and I'll get photos for you. So uh, continue to pray that they will be an oasis. It's called Oasis of Hope. Pray that it will continue to be that as they continue to preach the gospel to the people around them. And it's just exciting to be a part of. So thank you. That's your work. Thank you for being a part of that. Or I guess we should say, thank you, Lord, for allowing us to be a part of such a great thing. Amen? So um, I think that's it, yeah? Yeah, all right, Galatians 3. This has been one of the busiest weekends I've had in a really, really, really long time. I, we had the parenting workshop yesterday. I taught like three different times yesterday and then had to come, didn't even get to start working on this message until really, really late. And so I'm gonna be really honest with you guys right now. I don't like my outline. Um, I, I just don't. Uh, it's not my favorite. I would rather be more familiar with it. I would rather be more prepared and all these things. But, but I also take hope in that because it's almost every single time when I'm like, oh, I didn't like that one at all. That's the one where you guys are like, man, that spoke to me. So open the ears up because I don't like this one at all. <laughs> all right? Galatians 3. Let's just, let's just read the first nine verses and then we'll talk. O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Let me ask you only this. Did you receive the Spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, are you now being perfected by the flesh? Did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was in vain? Does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith, just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Know then that it is of those of the faith who are the sons of Abraham. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham, saying, in you shall all the nations be blessed. So then, those who are of the faith are blessed along with Abraham, the man of faith. God, I just pray that you would speak through me and in spite of me, that your spirit would be our teacher this morning. I pray, God, that you would use this text, though it was written to a group of people 2,000 years ago. Lord, we know that your word is living and active and profitable, Lord, so may it speak to our situation and to our soul and to our hearts as well. Lord, even some of the things we're going to talk about are, are technical, difficult maybe. And so I pray, God, you would give us, Lord, just the ability to be attentive and to receive everything that you would have. That, Lord, even your spirit would grace us with the, 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 just the grace of being able to learn about you. And I pray that these things, Lord, would be profitable to your kingdom as we leave this place. So, Lord, may the words of my heart and the meditation, excuse me, may the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O oh, my King, my Rock, and my Redeemer. In Jesus' name, amen. 
Amen. So, if you've been around any length of time, you know, I've said a lot of different times, that the concept, the idea of love has been absolutely kind of railroaded in our day and age. It really, in our culture, it doesn't mean what it meant to so many people throughout history. There's even things, the way we even use the term love, if we had used them in a different time frame, people would think we were insane. They really would. I mean, think about it, nine times out of 10, when you just use the word love, when you say I love, nine times out of 10, you're talking about just dumb stuff. I love fajitas, (laughs) right? I mean, I like fajitas a whole lot, but in different days and ages, if you had said, maybe, for example, around Galatia, if you'd have said, I love fajitas, they would have been like, what is wrong with you? You love fajitas? No, you like fajitas, but how can you love fajitas? That's just ridiculous. Because love carries a context that is a deeply emotional connection. It's, it's, it's about service. It's about all these kind of things. And they would say, you, you don't do that with fajitas unless you're insane. They would say, you like fajitas. This wouldn't even make sense. So what is it that love means to us if we say, okay, get rid of that part of love. Let's talk about interpersonal relational love. What does that mean? If we love someone, what does that mean to us if we love someone? Well, I mean, it means that, that we care for them, we want to be around them, maybe we want to serve them, we want to bless them, we want to do good things for them. It, it probably also means that we want to encourage them in the strengths, the things that we see in them. We want to build them up and, and talk to them about the things we see in them. I, I love you because of this, and I love this about you, and we want to just build one another up. And we like that kind of love. I almost said love that kind of love. But we, we, we like that kind of love, and why wouldn't we? I mean, let's face it, it's about us. So why wouldn't we? Love it when someone wants to be around us, wants to build us up, wants to pour into us, wants to encourage us in great things. Man, that's great, that kind of love. But real love, and especially biblical love, it's different than that. Yes, it serves. Yes, it edifies. Yes, it builds up. But it's thicker than that at its core. Because real love doesn't just deal with the good things in our life and encourage us in the good things in our life, but it'll get underneath and have something to say about the difficult things in our life as well. Real love when it sees maybe danger, real love when it sees maybe error, has the guts to roll up its sleeves and get its hands dirty and deal with what's going on in someone else's life for their betterment because they love them. But in our culture, that's not super popular. In our culture, we want love to just focus on the good thing and accept the bad things, and that's what makes love. That's what we're taught. Just accept the bad things, but don't try to change or don't have any words of correction. You just take me as I am. And in fact, to deal with error or something that we would say is quote-unquote wrong with someone else in many circles is considered supremely unloving. I have a dear family member that I have no contact with right now whatsoever for that very reason. She was going through a unbiblical, I would say even sinful, on, on both, both ways between the two of them, but sinful divorce. And, and she was talking with me, trying to get wisdom and trying to get counsel, and I'm just like, look, you can't do this. You don't know what this is about to do to your kids. You have no idea the heartache that you have ahead. You can't do this. You can't do this. You can't do this. And, and at a certain point, she got so fed up that she literally cut me off, and she said, I'm just looking for you to be a supportive, loving family. And I had to tell her, look, to, to watch you go towards heartache 
and to say nothing, that's not loving, that's supremely unloving. And, and so for me to watch her go in that direction and just affirm all the good things about her would be supremely unloving. This is what we see in the book of Galatians. In the book of Galatians, the church is headed towards something that is gonna be painful and difficult and harmful for them, and Paul dearly loves them. And so at this point in chapter three, the letter's gonna take a little bit of a term. You may have noticed when it starts out calling them fools. You don't hear that a lot in our day and age. Paul's starting to rebuke now. Now look, he has encouraged, he's called them brothers, he's done all of that stuff, but now Paul is heading straight on to some major things that they're dealing with right here and because he genuinely loves them. And so it's gonna take the form of a firm, hard, outright rebuke because that's what you do. I mean, think about it. Um, if you have a child near you and you're in your yard playing and that child is headed towards something absolutely deadly, there's a car coming down the street, the child breaks away from you and sprints towards the road and you run with everything you've got, you snatch the kid up by the back of the neck if you have to, pull that child away from the car just in the nick of time, set the kid down, then what do you do? Do you encourage? Man, you were fast. <laughs> that was close, but I'm, I'm really impressed with how fast you got from me to the car that almost killed you. Well done. No, you wouldn't do that, would you? If you love them, you know what you do? You say, all right, come here, come here. Come out here in the street. You see this spot? You know what that is? No, I know it looks like an oil spot, but no, that's not what it is. That was the neighbor's cat. And that almost happened to you. You know what I'm saying? Like you would rebuke and you, cat lovers are hating me right now. Yikes. Squirrel. Whatever. But, but you don't encourage them and build them up as they're walking towards danger. You love them. And so you jump in to protect and correct and rebuke if necessary in a loving way. And so that's what Paul's going to do. And he's fired up and he's worked up just like you would be if your child was in that same situation. And so this is what Paul is doing here. And he's going to do this through seemingly a series of almost disconnected, though the root of all of them is the same, just question after question after question to them, which probably is the reason I say I'm not a huge fan of this outline. It's a difficult sort of flow to put together. So we're really just going to go through each of these things that Paul is saying, hey, think about this. You're headed off the rails. Think about this and get back on track. Remember who you are and who you're supposed to be and where you're supposed to be going. This is Paul's call to them. So in verse 1, he starts out and says, O foolish Galatians, who has bewitched you? It was before your eyes that Jesus Christ was publicly portrayed as crucified. Now, Galatia and Jerusalem, far apart from each other. So it is possible that some of the people there did personally see the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. It's possible because some of the people there, the Jews that were in Jerusalem at least, scattered when persecution came to Jerusalem. And Galatia, Antioch, some of those areas became, if you will, uh, landing spots for a lot of the Jewish people. And, and so in, in this area in particular, Antioch, I think in particular, was like 50-50 between Gentiles and Jews. There's Jews that had scattered all over the place, Christian Jews. So it's possible. But more than likely, no one here or very few people actually physically saw the crucifixion of Jesus Christ. So when Paul is talking about being publicly portrayed, he's talking about the message that was delivered to them when the gospel was first brought into Galatia. And he's saying, look, 
you knew nothing about Jesus or salvation at all. And I came to you and I preached to you the crucifixion and resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the message I brought you for your salvation. I brought you the gospel. So what does that mean? And, and this is something that's really worth leaning in, all of you, because it's amazing how you, you can talk to people from time to time that have been in church forever, and you say, hey, what's the gospel? And you start getting, um, well, um, man, maybe it's just because people get put on the spot, those kinds of things, but, but sometimes I don't think we really have always a working, clear definition of what the gospel is, or the definition we have is a little too simplified. What's the gospel? Jesus died for my sins. No, that's part of it. But, but that's not all of it. And, and so to understand, when Paul came to Galatia, his message to them was, you have fallen far from the glory of God. We have all sinned and we are dead in our sin. We are dead men walking with no hope whatsoever of doing anything about it. But God looked down on us with mercy. And he injected himself, he incarnate himself into human history, became man, Jesus Christ himself. He walked this earth without sin. That's an important part of the gospel. Because the righteousness that we are given through Christ came because he lived a perfect righteous life. That's an important part of the gospel. So he lived this sinless life. He never sinned, and yet he went to the cross, and there he bore the weight, the shame, and the guilt of all of our sin upon his shoulders. He took the wrath of God, or his scripture even puts it, the cup of God. He drank the Lord's cup. He took all the wrath that was due us on himself. He died, but on the third day, he rose again from the grave. He's now ascended into heaven, where he is now our advocate. And for those who put their faith in him, and trust his sacrificial work, his promises, who he is. We believe in him by faith. He has granted us righteousness, forgiveness of sin, and we are saved and adopted into the family of God. That's the, amen, amen. That's the gospel that Paul brought to them. That's the message that he brought to them. And now he's saying, hey guys, you remember this message. So what's wrong, what kind of spell are you under? Who has bewitched you, he said? Who has come in and kind of conjured up something that has drawn you away? How could you leave such a beautiful truth to go back to some of these other things? What is wrong with you? Are you under a spell? Has someone fooled you? And then he goes on to deal head on with some of this, as if calling them fools isn't head on already, right? But he goes on in verse two and says, let me ask you only this, which is also funny, right? It's like, that's very preacher-like. I only have one point. And you're like, yeah, but your one point's gonna take an hour. You know what I mean? So this is, let me ask you only this. And then he lists off a whole bunch of questions. <laughs> so let me ask you only this. Did you receive the spirit by works of the law or by hearing with faith? Now, this is an important takeaway. To deal with this issue right off the bat, Paul says, listen, listen, now, now remember the context here. These people that had heard this gospel, they've allowed false teachers to come in and say, yeah, 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 that grace stuff's important, but there's all this other stuff you got to do too. And they're trying to make them now follow all these old Jewish laws and customs, the cleansing rituals, circumcision, all of these sorts of things. And they're saying, if you're not doing that, you're not really saved. It's Jesus plus this equals salvation. And so Paul says to them, all right, let's deal with this. Remember, remember your conversion. This is what Paul does. This is a good exercise for everyone in this room right now. To deal with this issue, Paul takes them back to the day of their conversion. He says, did you do anything to get saved? 
What was your day of conversion like? Remember it, literally. Like, remember that day. What was that like? Did, did you do anything? Maybe your testimony is one of those, like, gnarly ones where you were in the back of an unmarked van doing drugs with, you know, Guns and Roses or something like that, and you woke up the next morning and said, I can't keep living like this, and God just miraculously changed you. Maybe that's your story. Or, or, or maybe your story's way more religious, where you were sitting in the sanctuary of a church, and a preacher gave the gospel, and, and you responded, and you were saved that day. Whichever one it is, think of that day. What was that like? What did you do in that moment to be saved? Even if you were in the church, you go, well, I was at church, I was at a worship service. Okay, and you heard the gospel. How many good deeds did you then do when you left the church, ran outside, served the community so that you could work up to the salvation and then run back in and come down the aisle and say, I'm here? Or, or did you just come? I mean, did, did you go do things to earn the grace that you had just heard about or did you just receive it? and be saved. That's what Paul's saying. Think about this, man. What did you do? How did you earn? Where was that? Or did you simply just receive favor? As I said before the song, just as I am without one plea, but that thy blood was shed for thee. And that thou bidst me come to thee, O Lamb of God, I come. There's no middle verse that says, and once I cleaned myself up, O Lamb of God, I come. It's not there. Because you can't clean yourself up enough to earn the favor of God. This communion cup we took just a few minutes ago represents the blood. It is the blood of Jesus that washed us. You can't, you can't beat that. You can't possibly earn that. So Paul goes, go back to your conversion day. Did you earn it? Did you do works to deserve to be saved? Or did you simply receive the grace of God? I, mean, God, I don't know about you guys, God didn't come to me and be like, hey, Jeff, I want to save you, but we got to work a few things out first. I need you to meet me somewhere, man, because you're a mess. So no more of these movies, no more of this drinking, no more F-bombs, you're using that like an adjective. No more of these other things, and listen, no more of that, and get these things under wraps, and then I'll meet you at the front of Merriman Avenue Baptist Church in Asheville, North Carolina, and Pastor Billy Klein will be there, and we'll look at your to-do list, and if all those things are checked off, and maybe have a couple of witnesses, mom and dad, something like that, you get all that covered, and then we can do something. It wasn't like that at all. It wasn't like that at all. In fact, I didn't learn a whole lot about Christian living until after I had been saved. And this is what Paul is saying. No, look, he just saved you. He just saved you. You didn't earn it. You didn't do anything to do it. He just saved you. And so if God saved you like that at your worst, when you were doing nothing to deserve it, then why now are you being drawn away from that same gospel thinking now you've got to return to these works of the law and that in doing this stuff, now God's going to be pleased with you? Why is the basis of your relationship with God determined by whether you're nailing it or not on a daily basis? Why would you do that? It was never about that in the beginning. What makes you think it is now? And then he pushes firmly, verse 3, are you so foolish? Having begun by the Spirit, you are now being perfected by the flesh? Okay, so Christian growth, or the Christianese word, if you will, or the biblical word, frankly, is sanctification. 
Sanctification is that process that starts the day that you get saved and it ends the day we stand before Jesus Christ in eternity, is the process by which we are being changed, growing, being, as 2 Corinthians 3.18 says, being converted or being transformed into the image of God from one degree of glory to another. That's what that process is called. It starts at salvation, it ends in heaven. No one graduates early. No one, okay? So you're never done. It happens then. And it's a slow process, isn't it? Sometimes painfully slow. In fact, if we were really being honest, I think most of us in here would say um, we really probably more days than not feel we're static in that area. Just kind of the same as we were yesterday and things are just moving along and maybe we don't necessarily feel from day to day to day that things are changing. But then every once in a while something will happen that gives you a window into what God's been doing in your life that you weren't even aware of. Like somebody will come up to you and ask you some sort of question and you start answering it and halfway through the answer you're thinking to yourself, I should be writing this down, this is good. <laughs> like where did this come from? Now some people would say that's, that's, not, that's not what that is, that's not so much spiritual growth, that's the Holy Spirit working, he put this supernatural word into your life and that's what's going and I don't take that away, that could be, that's ab- God does that. But as we've said before when we've talked about the gifts of the Holy Spirit, do not forsake, don't get so focused on the supernatural things of the Spirit of God that you miss out on the quote-unquote ordinary things that the Spirit of God does in your life. Because think about it, maybe that answer's there because God's just been teaching you over a season. I mean, doesn't the Bible say that the things of the Spirit are not understood by us, they're understood by the Spirit, that the Spirit's the one that has to teach us those things. So day after day, as you're spending time with the Lord, as you're learning, as you're going to church, as you're reading the Bible, these things are being planted in you by the Spirit of God. And then one day someone comes and says something and this answer comes out and you're like, wow, man, God's growing me up after all. And you feel encouraged. You ever had days like that? That happens from time to time. It's evidence that the Spirit is working all along. And so Paul's saying, look, the Spirit's the one that works. The Bible says that Jesus is the author. That means the originator. He wrote our salvation or created or birthed our salvation. But it also says he's the what? The finisher. That means he's going to start it and he's going to finish it. And Paul says, so, so knowing these things... Why do you still keep running back to this, this pressure and this, this condemnation and this teaching that says, I have to do this or God's going to be upset with me. And I have to do this or God's going to be upset with me. But also, if I do this and this and this and this, God's going to be really proud of me. So why? It's not your work. This is a work of the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that perfects you. And then he goes on, verse 4. Or did you suffer so many things in vain, if indeed it was vain? So you can see how some of these things seem to be a little disconnected. He was talking about the law. He was talking about conversion. Then he was talking about the spirit. Now he's talking about suffering. And and what does he mean by that? Well, if you read the book of Acts, when Paul goes into Galatia and actually plants this church, you find that Paul experienced a great deal of persecution when these churches were planted. And so it would stand to reason that if Paul is going to be persecuted by people in these regions, clearly those who are now leading and running the churches and participating in the church are going to experience similar persecution as well. So as they're preaching this gospel, which by the way to the Jewish people around them is saying, all that religious stuff you're doing is not working. Can't work. You need Jesus, not law. That's not going to be an easily received message to them. And really that message in general that we need saving in the first place has never in the history of mankind been a popular message. We don't like to be told we're wrong. 
And so as this message is going on, persecution just keeps coming and just keeps coming. And so there's suffering that's going to come from that. They're going through difficult times. And Paul says, why, why are you bailing on this? Are you suffering in vain? Don't do that. Don't suffer in vain. Now, consider this. In our culture, as with many, suffering is something to be fixed. Like, if, if there's suffering, something's wrong, we need to fix it, we need to change it, we need to avoid it. Um, in those that we love, when they're suffering, we want to alleviate suffering. Suffering is usually viewed as an indication that something's off, and we want to fix that. So much so that some people actually will believe that when we're following God's will, that should be indicative of no suffering. Because if we're following God's will, we're just walking in the light, and nothing would touch us, and we're doing well. And then people will even um, interpret difficulty and suffering is, oh, that must not be God's will. God must be resisting and he's trying to redirect you. But is that biblical? Is that what Jesus taught? I'm loving our church right now. I'm seeing so many people doing this. I'm proud of you guys. No, it's not at all. Jesus said, in this world, you will have trouble. They hate me, they're gonna hate you. He even says in Matthew 5, blessed are you when you are persecuted for my name's sake. Blessed. Think about that for a second. In our day and age, so many people want to repackage the gospel message in a way that's not offensive and want to dumb it down and, or, or even almost make Jesus a side note in a message at the end. We just tag him on at the end, but we hope we've sucked people in with enough programs and seeker-sensitive stuff so that they like us and maybe over time they'll buy into the message. And that's not what Jesus says is going to happen. I mean, the gospel is foolishness to the world. It's offensive to the world. And if you're actually preaching the gospel, there is no way to package it that guarantees everybody that hears it is going to be okay with that. That is impossible to do. And, and so he's saying, listen, you guys have experienced persecution. You've gone through difficulty for the gospel, and now you're leaving the gospel. Like, why? All that suffering you've gone through would be in vain. Stick it out. There is a heavenly reward coming. Don't waste that suffering and abandon the gospel that God has called you to. You've been suffering for the gospel. Don't let that be in, in, vain, in vain. And then in verse 5, does he who supplies the Spirit to you and works miracles among you do so by works of the law or by hearing with faith? So now we got a whole other topic. Now we're talking miracles. You see, they're sort of disconnected, but there's a flow behind them all. Because think about this. Apparently, not only has the Spirit started this salvation in them, not only has the Spirit saved them, but now we find that the Spirit has been doing something among the people that the Bible refers specifically to as miracles. The Holy Spirit has been performing miracles around the people in Galatia. Now, there's three different ways the Bible uses the word miracles when it's talking about miracles. Three different ways. One of them is any time that the Spirit of God works outside of what is referred to as common grace. Common graces are things that whether you're saved or not, whether you know Jesus or not, there are certain common graces that God has given to all people because he is good and generous and loving. So, for example, um, Todd Miles brought it up last week when he was uh, lecturing over, over there about biblical interpretation. He was praying for our food right before we had lunch, and he made the comment in his prayer, God, thank you that you have blessed us with taste and that you can make food taste good. What a grace, because he didn't have to do that. Food could just be generic. Our car doesn't go, man, that fuel tastes good. And it could have been exactly like that for us. But instead, he gives us the common grace of enjoying a ribeye steak with a cab salve and just going, mm, God, you are good. 
You have blessed us. That tastes well. You've blessed us with sweet fruits of the vine and all of these things. These are common graces that God just loves us and wants us to enjoy his creation and wants us to enjoy life. And there's common graces in all sorts of area. The first spring rain. You know that smell? I don't know if it's the pavement. I don't know if it's the grass. I don't know what it is. But that daytime spring rain when you walk outside, that smell, oh, why is that not in a candle somewhere? That's a common grace. It's a, it's a joy that God gives us. Creation is beautiful. It didn't have to be. He could have just made everything flat. But it's a common grace to all people that shows us his grandeur, shows us his majesty, shows us his goodness. And with regards to miracles and healings, what are common graces we have now? I would say MRI machines, doctors, surgeons, hospitals, medicines, vaccinations, things that God has blessed people with the ingenuity, the knowledge, and the creativity to be able to deal with a lot of the issues that we have. That is a grace to our people right now that everyone enjoys. Uh, But now, to work outside of those, a miraculous healing outside of common grace, that's something different. Um, The other two, supernatural provision. When the Bible speaks of miracles, sometimes it's supernatural provision. Think loaves and fishes. Little bit feeds all these people with 12 baskets left over. Um, The people of Israel in the Old Testament, there was manna on the ground, how God provided for them. Um, Or just God's supernatural control over the universe, whether it's Jonah and the fish or Jesus gets up in a boat in the middle of a hurricane, looks at the storm and says, stop, and it does. Like, that's a miracle. That's how God works. And so in this case, we find out that there are miracles that are taking place around the people of Galatia by the Spirit. So it could have been any of those things. Let's just consider healing alone for an example, because no doubt it is one of the most common ones you actually see in Scripture all the time. So if the Bible's talking about healing, it means people were healed without doctor or medicinal or or, um, hospitals or any of those. Outside of those common graces, healings are taking place. And you go, you don't really believe in that stuff, Jeff, and especially now, do you? Absolutely, I do. My grandmother, I've told this story, it's been a while. My grandmother chain smoked for 33 years, like chain smoked, like never didn't have a cigarette, and tons of blankets in her house with it, cigarette burns in them to prove it from when she'd fallen asleep at night. It's a miracle she didn't cook herself. She got lung cancer, went in for surgery. They opened up her chest. We expected like a six hour surgery or something like that. Doctor comes back after like 45 minutes. That's never good, right? He says, we opened her up and what we saw in there, we, we can't touch that. It, it's way too bad. She might have six months. They sewed her back up and sent her home. She started going to church. Had never gone to church before. And even, this challenges a lot of my preconceived notions, but went to the craziest church I'd ever seen in my life. Like, the kind of church where people come in with tambourines and stuff like that. I'm surprised they didn't have snakes. Maybe they did. I don't know. Just crazy North Carolina country church, right? And, and the pastor calls her up, and they lay hands on her, and they start praying for her. And my weak, post-surgery, dying grandmother starts literally running laps around the sanctuary during worship. Craziest thing ever. What are these people doing? I was good old Southern Baptist conservative. These people are out of their mind. We got to get her out of here. She goes to the doctor the next week. They do a scan. Can't find the cancer. Can't even find it. Gone. So God used that. Amen. Amen. So, so you go, well, maybe the scans were wrong or what. They opened her up. They saw it. Two weeks later, it's gone. 
And I'm telling you right now, my grandma was like strong, not just strong, but like country strong. You know what I'm saying? I don't mean like go to the gym and lift weights strong. I mean like hay bales with one hand, kind of country strong. And if you tried to tell her that that wasn't God working in her life, who saved her spiritually and eternally and physically in that moment, she would have knocked you out. I'm just telling you. So don't tell me God doesn't heal. Don't tell me God doesn't heal. He absolutely heals. The Spirit still moves to this day. Now, a little sidebar on this, though. The Spirit working amongst the people of God, we need to understand something, though. It's not formulaic. It's not something that can be conjured or manipulated. So, so what do we do with that? Well, Bob Middleton, good friend of ours, he spoke here about a year ago, been wrestling with cancer. I don't know if you guys know this, but he, he came and he spoke and he talked about his cancer was in remission. And unfortunately, um, in the last couple of months, the cancer has returned and it's not looking real great for Bob right now. Please pray for him. He's a pastor up in the Dalles. And he was telling us, we were at this conference together and we went and had lunch and he was telling us about his experience with that and with different Christians from different backgrounds as they would hear his story. And he said, it was amazing to me how especially those that didn't really believe that the Spirit was still working in that day, he goes, you know what was weird about it? They didn't even pray for me. I mean, they would talk about like God's will and you're in God's control. And those are all great truths. But I'm over here, I'm like, I'm dying. Will you just pray for me? We're supposed to pray for that. God commands us to pray for that. And, and so when someone is sick amongst us, we should go before God and we should entreat of the Holy Spirit, Lord, heal them. And, and more and more, I'm getting to where I don't even like using that line, if it be your will. It doesn't matter if I say that or not. We're gonna see God's will play out whether I say that line or not. In that moment, I'm commanded by scripture to weep with those who weep and mourn with those who mourn, bear one another's burdens and cast all our cares on him. So more and more, I just wanna pray, God, heal them. And if I'm struggling with faith that he might actually do it, then I wanna pray for my own faith in that. And then you go, but, but what if he doesn't heal? Well, then I trust that God is a gracious, loving, sovereign God who just had a better plan than I did in that moment. But I want to pray for my brothers for healing. The Spirit does that, but we don't conjure him up. It's not a genie or a spell or anything like that. So we can't like navigate a service a certain way or pray a certain way and think that the Spirit's going to heal because we did this. This is what Paul's saying. Hey, when the Spirit did miracles, was it because of the stuff that you did? Was it because of your works? Was it because you were good people? Or was it because, as Jesus says, the Spirit moves where it will? It's like a wind. No one knows where it comes from. No one knows where it's going to go. The Spirit will move as the Spirit does. So when the Spirit healed, was it because you did a bunch of good works and, and God obeyed? God was like, you deserve it. I'm going to do it. No, it's grace. It's grace. And he said, well, if Bob was to lose his battle with cancer and end up in heaven, let's, let's make it more personal. A lot of you guys know this guy's funeral's coming up this week. David Sprunger, a dear friend of ours, one of the more godly, gracious, kindest men you will ever meet is not alive today and it's way too young. So did God withhold grace from David? No, David's healed. David's with Jesus today. And though we will weep at that service on Saturday, Dave's not crying. Dave's like, look, I love you guys and I miss you guys, but I'll see you in a little while. I'm hanging here. No one loses their battle to cancer if they're in Christ. But if you're not in Christ, that's a lot of suffering that's in vain. It really is. So Paul's just, look, when the Spirit moves, it's not because you did something. It's not because you prayed some prayer or did some work or deserved it. It's because God is just 
gracious. Amen? It goes on in verse 6. Here's where it gets technical. Verse 6. Just as Abraham believed God and it was counted to him as righteousness. Okay. Just as Abraham believed God, it was credited to Abraham what? Righteousness. You know what that means? That means that God just told us that Abraham was a Christian. You ever wondered about Old Testament saints before Christ? Paul just told us that Abraham was a Christian. He was granted righteousness thousands of years before Jesus walked the earth. So how does that happen? How is that? Well, Abraham was fabulously obedient. After waiting forever for this promised son that he would have, God comes to him and says, hey, your son, I want you to bind him up, take him up on top of that hill, put him on a big bundle of wood, you're going to stab him with a knife, and then you're going to burn him. It's going to be an offering to me. And he did it. And his son went along with it. I tell you, that's a big deal. We've tried that with your kids in the Sunday school room. They are not nearly, like they don't go along with that at all. That's a significant thing. So, what does it say? Abraham did everything that God asked of him and it was counted to him as righteous. No, it doesn't say that he was counted righteous because he was obedient at all. It just says he believed God. He had faith. God made a promise to him and he said, I believe you. And Jesus actually described it even more. In John 8, verse 56, Jesus says, your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. In other words, Abraham understood way more than we give him credit for about what those promises to him meant. He understood God was promising more than just a kid. He was promising a savior, a king. And Abraham said, I believe. And he was saved. He was a Christian. And men like David and Moses and these people who believed in this promise of God. That's what Hebrews 11 is all about. And Romans 5 even teaches us that the sins of the world, of all men, it doesn't say, I am now dying for the sins of men starting in AD 0 and forward. He says, all men, all men. So the sacrifice of Christ covered Abraham's sin and mine. And so this is what he's saying. Why was Abraham saved? Not because he was obedient, he believed. And to really drive the point home, think about it. Abraham was 430 years before the law was even given. There was no Ten Commandments. There was no covenant, Abraham, if you live like this, I'm going to be your guy. That stuff, those laws weren't even there. He couldn't go, I deserve to be saved because I, I didn't covet and I've honored my father and my mother and all those kinds of things. Not at all. He believed God. He said, I believe in your promises. I put my faith in your promise. I am following you. And he was saved. He was saved. It's always been grace by faith. Don't ever fall into the belief that it was law until Jesus came and then God just changed the program around and now it's grace. It was always grace. Amen? So God saved him. He saved the people of Israel. Think of the people of Israel. Delivered from Egypt way before they got to Mount Sinai and received the Ten Commandments. It was always grace. And so then Paul says in verse 7, Know then that it is those of faith who are sons of Abraham. So the people of Israel believed that because they were the linear descendants of Abraham, that they were part of God's favored nation of Israel, and therefore they were saved. And Paul turns this on its ear and says, no, 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 no. The sons of Abraham are those who are following Abraham in faith. I mean, young people, young people in this room, listen in. Your, with all due respect, mom and dad, don't freak out on me on this, but young people, 
you're not a Christian because your mom and dad are. You're not. There's no group admission into heaven. You know that? Like, we're not Christians because we're Americans. We're not Christians because our family is. My daughters will not be Christians because their dad was a pastor. None of that matters. The only thing that makes us Christian is that we believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and because of that, we have been saved. Grace by faith. That's all. That's the only thing. And so how many of us grew up in church singing, Father Abraham had seven sons, many sons, and many sons had father. That was a different movie, Seven Brides or Seven Brides. Anyway, (laughs) let's start over. Father Abraham had many sons, many sons had Father Abraham, and I am one of them, and so let's just praise the Lord, right arm, Father Abraham. That, we're not doing all that, don't worry. The, the only reason we could sing that is because we followed Father Abraham in faith. I'm, I'm not a, a linear descendant of Abraham whatsoever, but I'm a son of Abraham by faith. And this is what he's telling them. This is not about your law or your lineage or any of that stuff. It is about faith in Jesus. And then he, let's close the passage out, Galatians 3, 8 through 9. And the scripture, foreseeing that God would justify the Gentiles by faith, preached the gospel beforehand to Abraham. By the way, Abraham, thousands of years before Jesus, what was preached to him? The gospel. The good news of the Messiah was preached to Abraham, saying, in you shall all nations be blessed. So then, those who are of faith are blessed, along with Abraham, the man of faith. Paul was saying that the gospel was preached to Abraham, that through him, this is Genesis 12, you can read it, through him all the nations of the world would be blessed. And what that means is, is that this redeemer was coming through Abraham's line that would then spread throughout all nations, not just saving Israel, which Israel tended to think, but saving all nations so that here we are in America, thousands, that were on the other side of the earth from where this took place, and we are blessed. How many of you are blessed because of Jesus? Amen. All people of all earth have been blessed because of that. Now, but think about this for a second. If, if you still want to hold to this, we have to keep the law to make God happy. Think about this. Through him, all people would be blessed. Well, you remember our analogy? We talked about how the law is a diagnostic, just like you take your car to a mechanic and they plug it in, and it tells you what's wrong. Well, that, that's what the law is. And who has ever gone to a mechanic, had your car plugged into the diagnostic, and they said, uh, you, you've blown a gasket, or you've blown a thingy thing, or whatever it is, I'm not a car guy. You blew something, and we're gonna have to fix it. And how many of you went, oh, blessed be I? <laughs> that's never good news. That's never blessed. So the law can't be what he was talking about because no one's blessed by the law. We are condemned by the law. We are pointed at and we are told, no, fallen, wrong, broken, hopeless, sinful. No, no, no. That can't be what he's talking about. He's talking about the gospel. And now, please lean in and get this part. And we're going to close. I'm going to just share a couple things when we'll be done. Now, Paul's talking to the Galatians and he's telling them, guys, you need to remember some things because you're getting off track and you're forgetting the gospel that you've been called to. And remember, Paul's motive is what? Protective love. Like the child who's about to end up in the street. He's saying, guys, it's important that you stick to this or it's going to be difficult for you. It's going to be painful for you or even deadly for you. And here's the reality. Even though this was written to a church on the other side of the planet 2,000 years ago, it is every bit as applicable to us because we do the same exact thing. We do the same thing. I mean, 
if I can phrase it like this, it's easier to do than to be. It is easier to do than to be. Because we can do things that make us feel the love of God. I mean, look, I'll tell you right now, there are times, it's not today, but there are times when I might be preaching a sermon, I'm thinking, man, I'm nailing this. God's got to be so proud of me right now. I'm serious. You ever felt that way? Or, man, I'm ministering to this need. That's, and you just feel favored. You know what I'm saying? When you're just nailing it. It's easier to feel that way than to just be because we can't always be in that season and to just believe it apart from our efforts is not easy. And I'm one of those kind of people like, I hate a wasted day. Those days that you come in and you have your to-do list and you end up dealing with a whole bunch of other stuff but you don't get anywhere done, I go home at the end of the day and I feel frustrated. I feel unfulfilled. I feel like I got nothing done. For me, at the end of the day, I want to go home with this fulfillment like I got it. I nailed it. And that is antithetical to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We wish in our heart that it wasn't. And so we can so easily get drawn into this thing where just that same kind of mentality that will corrupt our relationship with God that says when we're nailing it, when we're doing well, when we're getting all these kind of things, man, God loves me. But the fallback of that, which can be so much darker, is that on those days when we are failing, which if we're really honest, it's more than we're succeeding, most likely, well, then your, your relationship with God is tainted. And then what do you do to come back? You feel like, okay, now I, I need a day of nailing it so that I'm back in God's good favor. That is just our instinct. That's just what happens naturally to us. And so by contrast, I just never really feel the love and approval of God naturally on that day. That takes work. That takes remembrance. That takes sometimes a certain amount of at least mental effort to remember. It's easier to do than to be. And we all have the tendency to be drawn back into this effort-driven Christianity, to, to condemn ourselves for our own hearts, to condemn ourselves on those days that we're just not doing well when the Bible tells us that there's no condemnation in Jesus Christ. But don't we feel condemned a lot? So, so we have problems with this. So just like the Galatian people, we need to find ways to even almost discipline ourselves, to transform our mind, to be renewed in our minds, to think about things differently so that we're not going off the rails. And I think there's some lessons in this that are helpful for us too. Like, for example, the first thing I think we can do to stay on the rails, so to speak, is remember the day of your conversion. Just remember that day. Remember what it was like. Remember what you were thinking, who you were, maybe the hopelessness, the desperateness, or whatever that was going, desperateness, desperation, whatever that was, but remember that day. Did you earn salvation, or did you just receive it? And if you don't remember that day, maybe it's because you haven't had it. That's an important thing to consider. I mean, and, and, and let's, let's bust up a paradigm really quick, can we? That picture you have in your head of mature, complete, righteous, whatever your name is, that, that picture that you have in your head, maybe that expectation of this is who I'm going to be one day or who I should be or who I wish I was right now, let me just bust up your paradigm right now. Give that thing a hug and kiss it goodnight because it's not going to happen this side of eternity. 
We would love to convince ourselves that eventually we're going to get a handle on all this stuff and one day we're going to be standing at the end be like, I did it, I've got it, and now I'm just waiting for Jesus. But in reality, most of us will continue to just scratch our way through life clinging desperately to faith in Jesus, two steps forward and one step back, which is still a step forward. And many of us, we will stumble into the arms of our Savior in eternity and be thankful that he was so gracious to catch us. That's the reality of the Christian life. And so remember that. When that condemning heart comes and tries to say, you're not worthy of this, you go, you're right, but he is, and he just gave it to me. Remember that. Second thing, keep getting up. Just keep getting up. Keep walking forward. I mean, look, in this room right now, there are all sorts of gnarly issues and addictions and all sorts of things going on, and our hearts can condemn us over and over and over and over and over. But let me just encourage you, keep getting up. Just keep getting up and walk by faith (laughs) that God is not waiting on you to get your addiction under control so that he can then give you his favor. Which really leads into the third thing that I want to bring up. Another thing we can do to keep ourselves on the rails is pay attention when you read the Bible. Just pay attention to what's actually going there. We have in our mind that these Bible characters are these incredible, like, godly heroes. I would say pay attention. They're not. The Bible is full of train wrecks. I mean, Abraham, do you realize that there came a day when there was a king that thought Abraham's wife was hot? And so Abraham's plan for dealing with that was, look, um, I don't want to get hurt, and he's probably going to take you anyway, so here's what we'll do. We're just going to tell him that you're his sister, and you just go to bed with him, and things will be okay. You, don't, you think he heard, guys, don't you think he heard about that for the rest of his life? <laughs> but think about this. He whored out his wife to save his own butt. Does that sound like a perfect, godly, spiritual hero or a man who had major issues but was saved by the grace of God? So there's no sin out here that anyone's dealing with that can disqualify you from the grace of God. So when you read the Bible and when you're struggling with your own condemnation over stuff, pay attention. That's the story of redemption written by the very hand of God. The fourth thing, I would say this, walk deeply in community. And I think this is a must whether it be in our huddle groups, which is an awesome place for this. But look, we need to be encouraged by one another, to have people that will help us through difficulties, that will love us enough to help us deal with stuff in our life. But we need one another. And the community of faith is a grace that has been given to the people of God to sustain us through difficult things in life. And so a lot of times we bury ourselves with condemnation because we haven't surrounded ourselves with other people that can help hold us up and bear our burdens with us. So walk deeply, deeply in community. And here, here, a little side note to this, by the way. In community, there's two types of people. In the Christian community, there's two different types of people. We have those people in here that we like. They encourage us. We want to be around them. We feel good when we're around them. They help us. We know they're there for us. Those are great, right? But can we be honest? There's the other kind. In the family, there's the other kind. And look, it should, it should make sense. We call it the family of Christ. Think about your own family. You've got the ones you want to get together with, and then you've got those holidays where you're like, oh, Uncle Phil's coming, right? 
but those are both a grace. One is the one who is encouraging you and helping you and is just a grace to be around, but the other person is the one that God's going to use to reveal things about your own heart. The rough stone that God's going to use to chisel off difficult things about us, and they're both graces for our betterment. So walk deeply in Christian community. And then finally this, walk in obedience. This is in... in, in um, relation to how does the law work with us. And you're going to push on this stuff deeper tonight in your uh, huddle groups. But, but let me say this. We talked about this a couple of weeks, and I just want to revisit. The law is a diagnostic that shows us where we fall, that shows us our need for a Savior. And so then we realize who Jesus Christ is. That's the Savior who promises this grace to us. He's forgiven us. We are blessed. We're forgiven. We're in the family of God. But now after that, the law changes because the law is no longer your diagnostic. Now Jesus is. What I mean by that is now when God looks at you, he doesn't look at you and go, Jeff has failed because look at all the laws he's failed. No, he looks at me and he sees Jesus and he says, Jeff is perfect because he's looking at the righteousness of Christ. Christ becomes my diagnostic and I'm forgiven. What the law changes to is instead of condemning me, now the law is wooing me. The law is wooing me into greater communion with him, greater peace, less pain. God's law is then a gift and a common grace given to all of the church. Tonight, you're going to push on that even deeper. We don't go throw the law away, but our relationship with the law changes after that. It's no longer this thing we do to earn God's favor. We have God's favor. It, it actually is another evidence of God's favor on us. And when you walk in that, you'll see that. When you're living in that, you'll see that there are blessing after blessing after blessing that God has for his covenant people. Amen? Will you guys stand with me? If you remember nothing else as you're leaving this place, just remember this. You are forgiven. If you've put your faith in Jesus Christ, he has forgiven you. And whatever condemnation you face, however you feel like a failure, any of those things, you must know this, that the whole point Paul is trying to push down is like, look guys, you are continuing to go back to try to earn something that God has already freely given you. Instead, what he wants you to do is just revel and bask in the grace and mercy of Jesus Christ. And that's the message to us. That's the message to us. Return to Jesus. Cling to Jesus. Don't judge yourself by how you're doing over here, but instead, look at the grace and mercy that Jesus has given you. And I'm telling you right now, the Bible even tells us as we behold him, we what? We become like him. So I want to encourage you, church. Keep your eyes on Jesus. Train yourself in the gospel. When you feel condemnation building up, I'm a loser, I'm a failure, I can't do this, then teach yourself the gospel again. Say, wait a minute, no, I'm forgiven. There's no condemnation in Christ. That feeling I'm feeling, that's not coming from God. He promises it's not coming from God. That's coming from me, or that's coming from them, or that's coming from them, but that's not coming from God. And remember the grace and mercy, the extravagant grace and mercy Jesus has poured out on you. It's Jesus plus nothing equals everything. Amen?
Lord, even as we close in song, I pray, God, that you would just continue to free us and to free your people from the burden of works-based faith, of, of trying to earn your favor when you have poured it out on us so deeply and so greatly. Lord, we are so thankful for your love and grace. We're thankful for this reminder. And I pray, God, that even as we walk outside today and get to bask in that beautiful, warm sunlight, may we remember, Lord, that we're actually basking, Lord, in the warmth and love of the Son who gave his life for us. We love you, Lord. We thank you. And Lord, may you just bless and be with your people as we leave this place. Let's sing.